And it is Happy Mother's Day. So we will say good morning to our panel, Leave Lines, political editor of the Times Irish Edition, Dave O'Connell, editor of the Connacht Tribune, and Grani Long, chief executive of the ISPCC. Good morning, all. While you are on the airwaves, let us go around the room and wish uh, respective ladies in our lives who need to be mentioned this morning. Grani, we'll begin with you. Yes, Happy Mother's Day to Mammy Long. Yes, sitting in the kitchen, no doubt, listening, listening good. carefully. I have to say, she's also going to be a granny pretty soon. Yes. So um, I didn't yes, want to say I'm, it's always dangerous I'm, to I'm, say I'm, these I'm things. I'm growing, growing <laughs> rapidly. So she's also been stuffing me with food, twice the amount of food. So I suppose now is the time to thank her and and just say keep it coming, mum. Keep well, the chicken well, sandwiches well, coming. D- Dave, you want to pass the felicitations to a mother in your life? Uh, mother-in-law, I suppose, uh, to get in complete uh, contrast to everybody else. I, I should say I am not pregnant. Uh, I'm always, <laughs> uh, I'm always this size. Um, but my mother, and of course my wife, the mother of my two children. I'm glad you mentioned Tracy because uh, you wouldn't have liked if you left her out. Now. Uh, d- not at all. We we move in different circles these days. No, sorry. Before anyone thinks that that says we're not together, we are. Uh, I need to be careful what I say. Happy Mother's Day to Teresa and and uh, and to my mother-in-law, Kay. Okay, and Niamh? Margaret Lyons, uh, Malhide. Actually, she's probably a mass. So probably won't even hear this but also can I wish happy birthday to my dad for during the week because it's one of those things no, you're you know, really you, ta- you're taking liberties you here now you always forget your dad's birthday and all of us text each other a bit like Stephen missing his alarm this morning we all text each other going don't forget dad's birthday tomorrow and then the three of us inevitably forget so happy birthday you should, birthday you to should play a special night. song for him that <laughs> yeah, was the op- <laughs> opportunity to sing in early at this stage uh, uh, we've tried to keep the listeners so maybe not um, and Mammy Healy Una Healy who's listening to us in Cork good, happy Mother's Day good morning Mammy uh, Colette Healy my good lady wife who is also a mammy who has three children at home who are probably screaming at her as we speak I wish her a happy Mother's Day and my mother-in-law Helen uh, who was I didn't oh, know your mother was one of the Saturdays <laughs> yeah, she, 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 that's right yeah she, she, she's holding up well I can tell you <laughs> anyway let's go to the front of the Sunday papers lots to chew on and we'll go through them all they all remind everybody including Stephen to put the clock forward an hour <laughs> uh, although it took him a while to see that um, the front of the Sunday Times lovely picture there actually from the Waterford Greenway that's after opening uh, Simon Coveney and a load of kids cycling uh, along the Greenway 46 kilometres and great weather for that yesterday as well. Uh, their main story though, Fianna Foyle has lost faith in Garda Chief. Uh, John Mooney writes, the position of Noreen O'Sullivan as Garda the Commissioner looked increasingly untenable last night after Fianna Foyle said it could no longer express confidence in her. Jim O'Callaghan, the party's justice spokesman, described as completely unsatisfactory the statement issued by O'Sullivan yesterday in which she failed to explain how thousands of motorists had been wrongly convicted of road traffic offences. Uh, their other story, no dilution of Good Fridays. This is a perennial. Since since I began writing and, and, and reporting, this has been a story at this time of year. Valerie Flynn writes, Justice Minister Francis Fitzgerald has rejected publicans' pleas to call time on Good Friday alcohol sales, a ban as it would send six mixed messages and mixed signals I beg your pardon when the government is introducing new laws to curb the nation's drinking so everyone's just going to go to the off license like they've done <laughs> all the other years but uh, it's not going to be in pubs much to the uh, chagrin of the publicans uh, NAMA's lost profits is the headline on the Sunday Business Post taxpayers miss out on 18 billion euro windfall report for developer claims vulture funds making a killing investors made 317 million euro profit in 11 quick flip property deals so that will get your blood pressure going and there's a poll as well uh, we'll talk about the, the political aspect and the parties and how we really learn nothing new from it to be honest um, but they say more than two thirds of people do not believe that the government has a clear plan for Brexit according to the latest Sunday Business Post Red Sea poll which would give you a kind of an indication that maybe the other third I'd love to have a little bit of what they're drinking because if they think they've got confidence in what the government are doing uh, the Sunday Independent 
Theirs is the story. Terror Network uncovered here. Uh, evidence of links between three ISIL suspects in the wake of London attack. Uh, the Sunday Independent today reveals for the first time new evidence that a network of ISIL terrorists has been based and operating in Ireland. A man facing deportation because of his alleged link to extremism is suspected of being part of a small but dangerous group of suspected ISIL terrorists in Ireland. I didn't actually notice this until I came into studio, but then that they have a picture underneath that headline there, the two sides of Martin McGuinness, and one might argue that uh, that picture could have been put at a different part of the page. Um, Chief Garda Chief loses confidence of Fianna Fáil. Jody Cochran also has that story that Jim O'Callaghan uh, has now said he's unable to express confidence in the Garda Commissioner after she issued a statement yesterday on the latest serious controversies <coughs> to engulf the force. Uh, front of the Mail on Sunday, slush fund at Garda College. I think this story actually actually would have been on the Sunday Times a couple of weeks ago, but they've more detail. John Lee has more detail on a damning audit reveals Templemore broke the law and orders it to hand over its golf course. I didn't realise they had a golf course in Templemore. Didn't realise that was a key part of the guard, the training, that they go out and have a few rounds. But there you have it. Uh, but they're handing it over either way. Um, we, we'll begin with the, the, the Noreen O'Sullivan story. And uh, Niamh, if I can come mm. to you first. There's a line in Noreen O'Sullivan's statement yesterday, and I read it when it came out yesterday afternoon, that just made no sense to me. From the inevitable public, line. Yeah. yeah. And the, the line, and it's repeated in Jody's, Jody Corcoran's copy. In that statement, Noreen O'Sullivan also warned it was inevitable mm. that more examples of bad practice would be identified in Garda Shia Khan. How can anyone have confidence mm. in Garda management if it's inevitable that worse is going to come than what we found out this yeah. week? And I suppose the key to every Garda crisis that's happened over the past while is that this idea that there's a culture uh, within Angar the Shikana. And that culture is one of secrecy, lack of transparency. And it trips them up every single time. And really, you you did feel that the last occasion that the policing authority, or perhaps possibly was the occasion before last, uh, when they met, Josephine Feely felt it uh, impossible to express full and complete confidence in Angar the Shikana. And that now may be the undoing of Noreen O'Sullivan because really um, this just might be the straw that breaks the camel's back. Now you can't always necessarily look for a head but I think Fianna Fáil in many ways were actually quite clever in the way they handled this one because they didn't immediately go for blood. Jim O'Callaghan was quite measured on the radio the other morning saying look I want answers, we need a fulsome response, we need to understand exactly what happened and why it happened because if you drill down into the numbers we're not just talking here about you know Uh, statistics. We're talking about people who may have lost a job because of their excess penalty points. They may have failed to get a job because of a conviction. Um, You know, so anybody who thinks that this is just another one of those eye roll, you know, I'm sure it'll pass things. And that appears to be how it went down um, inside the headquarters uh, in in Phoenix Park, Mm. I think is quite wrong because all it will take now is for the government to meet and to decide uh, to stave off a possible Fianna Fáil motion of no confidence and and decide to to bite the bullet with Noreen O'Sullivan or for the policing authority to recommend um, that perhaps someone new is found for that role. So it's going to be a difficult week for them. It is going to be a difficult week, but Grandi Long, as as we are all citizens of this Mm. state and we all were reading during the week that they were 
as the old saying goes from the wire, those fans of the wire, they were juking the stats. Mm. They were saying there were more checkpoints than there were. There were more breath tests than there were. And even when they do a mea culpa, we're still not sure if that's the end of it. That That's no way to run a police force. Oh, it's really worrying. And I think it's worrying massively for public trust in the police force. And there was a number of parts in the statement that gave me cause for concern yesterday. Not just the warning of bad practice findings, future bad, further bad practice findings being, being inevitable, but actually it, it, there was very little in the statement that answered the three questions that any organisation needs to be able to answer in a crisis. What has happened? Why has it happened? And how did it happen? Now, um, you know, depending on the nature of the statement, you could understand that they may have felt, well, OK, let's, let's answer that in due course. But there was nothing to give public reassurance that they understood that those three questions had to be answered and here's how we're going to answer them. So that that's the bit that worries me. I have to say, uh, you know, it has felt thus far that in the last number of months, the Guardi have not been getting on top of this. So they've been they've been answering questions rather than getting ahead. I wondered whether when Norna Sullivan said about more bad practice is inevitable, is this her attempt of trying to get ahead because she knows there are further things to come. Well, it's by all accounts, th- th- this wasn't something that they found under a rock on Wednesday. No, and ju- and Jim Cusack actually has a, has an interesting uh, comment on this in page four um, of the Sunday Independent, where he talks about a report that was uh, ha- that was handed to the commissioner in 2014 by an independent investigative and advisory body in the Garda in- Inspectorate. So, you know, if if it is the case that senior management in the Garda have been aware of systemic failings. And and Norina Sullivan herself described this as not just systemic, but also cultural, which is really worrying. Mm. Well, then why is it taken from 2014 to 2017? And mm. why is it the case that actually it's the press and it's the Garda Inspectorate and the Garda Authority that are having to chase this? So that's the kind of public trust issues that I think really need to be answered and, and much more quickly than they're being answered currently, Johnson. And, and the funny thing, Dave, uh, we all have friends who are guards. We, mm. Some people, family members who have mm. guards. And if you speak to, they recall themselves mules because they feel as if they are carrying the entire weight of the force on their shoulders if you talk to them even five years ago and ask them where the fault lay they would have said it lay it lies with management it lies mm. with the higher echelons who are allowing things to happen that shouldn't be happening and and there were they were feeling unsupported and everything that's coming out now is kind of giving that further credence that you know it wasn't necessarily the rank and file who are making mistakes it was it was structures it was policies it was things that were being allowed to slide when they shouldn't have It was and one of the things that uh, Gardy will frequently tell you is that the way to advance through the force now is through being a very good accountant rather than being a very good uh, solver of crime that everything comes down to figures and statistics now you know to, to take up Grania's point I'd settle for the answer to one of these questions is what has happened here because to dismiss this as bad practice is actually giving a bad name to bad practice. Bad practice is uh, tearing up a parking ticket or putting it back in your pocket or dumping it into the bin. Bad practice is not uh, putting in 700 and uh, 937,000 breath tests that didn't happen or 14,700 wrongful convictions. That is not bad practice. That is an epidemic. And when you have a line like this, I mean, I, I actually we become so immune to this, but John Mooney has a line in the Sunday Times uh, by way of explanation, Gardy either failed to record the number of roadside tests carried out or simply made up figures to meet targets. I mean, that's, that, that's glib. They're well, literally making stuff up. Maybe so. But how else do you explain a million 
test that didn't happen. This is not a a station. It's not even a region. This is right across the four. It is a culture and it may have come from a time where there was a need to get the figures. We all hear the stories say, oh, they're all out today because it's the end of the month and they need to get the figures up or whatever. And that does a disservice to, as you say, the ordinary rank and file Gardaí. But there is a preoccupation with ticking boxes and making sure that the statistics are right, keeping down the overtime bill. It is being run by accountants and that is the difficulty. But do we and, and I think there's a wider issue here. The Irish have proven themselves to be completely incapable of management. Um, you know, they they failed to manage, the, the civil service failed to manage things properly during the financial crash. Now guard the management are failing to manage things here. Is there any element we can go, apart from, you know, the private sector where Michael O'Leary might be held up as some kind of paragon of virtue? Mm. He can't solve everything, yeah, Michael O'Leary. Exactly. Yeah. I know we'd like to think he could, but is is there a problem with... officialdom and how things are managed in this country. I don't know about that. I think more that it's that a government department will set out, you know, you know, uh, massive targets that need to be met. But also, when you look at something like the Gardaí or like the HSE that obviously we hear again is going to be abolished again, you know, about the third minister who's who said they will. But there are some institutions that are just too big now, you know, they're just behemoths and we can't, you know, control them. And it's 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 difficult for even just one person to be at the top of them. And like, let's not forget a lot of what we're reading. I mean, firstly, didn't it seem bizarre that you'd hear over a bank holiday weekend that all these people were bagged and you'd kind of go, I don't know anyone who's had a breath test. I personally haven't been breath tested for about do six or seven years. <laughs> but what I mean is, you know, it, it would always astound me that you'd hear these massive figures of people who were caught drink driving over a particular weekend and you kind of go, I didn't hear of anyone or any checkpoint or anyone around or none of my well, friends. Would it not you know? also astound you that there is a crackdown on a bank holiday weekend as yeah. though the rest of the year is all good and fine and that mm-hmm. they have to announce that there are going to be checkpoints yeah. rather than actually there are checkpoints. Mm. This is also the type of thing that Morris McCabe was talking about when he first came out in 2014 or sorry uh, 2004 when he was consistently saying that you know there are certain layers of bureaucracy within Angarda Siakana where it's a, a kind of a computer says no mentality you know you want the system to change and you want it to be better um, but every layer above your head isn't allowing you to mm. kind of do what you think is just practical police work, mm. and that's where the malpractice comes in. But I think, to, and I think to answer your question in relation to is, is it management? For me, it's about it's governance and accountability. So you can have organisations that aren't particularly well managed, but actually. The, the, the crisis is caught before it becomes endemic or systemic mm. because you've got either a good board or a good account, uh, accountability framework. It, it appears to me when we look at all of the stories that we've looked at really since the beginning of this year, whether it's HSE, whether it's Dusler, whether it's the Gardaí and many others, that what we don't have are really consistent, well-known and publicly trusted accountability structures in Ireland. And they're not there long enough. Those that have been put in place like the Guard Authority, like the Guard Inspectors, they've either not been there long enough or reports are published and everybody thinks that's the panacea. Oh, look, Mm. we've had a report. You know, the other thing we're very, very bad at is you know, essentially not reading reports and not implementing reports. And there was a number of weeks ago 
a list of the number of child related child abuse and child neglect related reports published by the Irish Times and there was 22 of them and I remember going through them with with some of the team in the ISPCC and we could immediately see of those reports which haven't been fully implemented the Ryan report has still would you Mm. believe and we said this would never happen again and we all wrung our hands and there are key aspects of recommendations that the Ryan report made in relation to child protection that we're still not implementing an independent review into child deaths still not being so implemented. Does, does that go so back we don't have gov- we don't do follow through. But is, the, is that government's fault? Is, oh. is, is is that that that's the individual government departments again the civil servants and maybe the politicians who are running well in the, in these particular in, in instances it absolutely is departments because uh, reports are well it's the departments and it's the Oireachtas you know I mean again if you look at other jurisdictions. Uh, parliamentary committees have formal statutory roles for holding state agencies to account. So if you take any one of those, the Independent Child Death Review, for example, which was published when Francis Fitzgerald was, was Minister for Children, that report hasn't been brought to an Oireachtas committee for years. Mm. I haven't seen a working group. I haven't seen a task force set up to say there were this many recommendations. We want to hear from you once a quarter on implementation of those recommendations and civil servants, you will keep coming to us until they're implemented in full. We don't do that. The reason that happens is because they just need a few bob. Now, obviously, within Tusla, the Child and Family Agency, there's a huge problem with social care and social workers. So there's just a massive deficit in the number of people they need. So really, they can't try to implement a report like that because it obviously calls on a kind of a doubling or tripling of the amount of people that kids when they leave care would need to interact with or kids while they're in care would need to interact with. So that's kind of one of the most basic problems. But there's more than that. I mean, obviously, you know, Mahan and Moriarty haven't even been fully implemented and they went to the core of our very democracy and, you know, uh, everything that was bad about politics. I mean, there's a malaise within government whenever, as you say, a report is done and it kind of, it allows someone to put a kind of a, to to, to jump on a grenade um, and kind of get the, you know, get the issue off the agenda for a short while. But, but it's only ever the short while. We never yeah. fix it in the long term. Rather yeah. than, than jump on the grenade, I think it's about tossing it further down the road yeah. and let it go off in somebody else's yeah. watch because that's what's really, I mean, there are times, and you're quite right, Connie, that, that a report or a tribunal or whatever is the, is the way to go. Quite honestly, if I was falsifying stuff like is going on within the Garda Shiakana, I would be fired, first of all. And secondly, I think I'd probably be subject to a criminal investigation. We actually, I know you can can't investigate yourself or maybe that's the difficulty with something like this but again another line Jim Cusack uh, piece says the inspectorate also found that Gardaí have been corporately covering up and lying about serious crime now that doesn't require a tribunal that requires mm. the DPP somebody I mean, somebody made a very apt reference uh, to, in, to what happened in Britain they jailed a politician because he transferred mm. three penalty yeah. points to his wife and look where we are. Yeah. <laughs> What's happened here? But at the same time, um, Dave, we, we need the guards and, and there are serious things going on in this country and that the Sunday Independent highlights one of them that, you know, uh, these uh, a couple of ISIS guys may be using Ireland as a bit of a base. And, and I mean, of all the things that the, the cops should be doing now, that's probably towards the top of the list, isn't it? It's uh, absolutely at the top of the list uh, for sure. And it, again, it is a chilling story. I mean, I think we were talking outside of, and there's many aspects of what happened uh, in at the House of Parliament this week uh, in Westminster that 
send a chill down your spine. I suppose most of all that this was caused by a guy who wasn't on the radar in the recent past. He hasn't been on the radar since before the London Olympics. And even at that stage, I'm not sure how much on the radar he was. He was he was trouble and troubled. Uh, but how far it went beyond that, who knows? If we the difficulty for the British is that with all of their intelligence, these guys don't, they're not radicalised in a group, so they don't seem to know who they are anymore. And anyone, now a car is a deadly weapon. Now a kitchen knife, oh, a kitchen knife always was a deadly weapon. Mm. Do you know what I mean? That you don't need to go on a training camp into Pakistan and come back and be watched at the airport coming in. You're a guy who went about your life, went to a hotel in Brighton, hired a car in Birmingham, went to a hotel in Brighton, drove up and killed people on Westminster Bridge. You don't have, you don't need any training in that. So therefore, the situation in Ireland, if we do know of any of these people, and there is a difficulty, as we know from the the independent uh, story today, with deporting this man, because it's not as straightforward as it should be. You know what? There are very few times, and maybe the only time, that I would see merit in what Donald Trump talks about. But honestly, if a guy has come in here and he's trouble and he's known to be trouble and he's radicalising or getting to other people the door is the way to go mm. Well, sorry just on that point so so the gentleman we're talking about here was born in the UK okay so there is no um, argument in favour of deportation he's a criminal he's undertaken allegedly an act that has um, and, and has murdered people I, I, I agree with Dave's original analysis, which is ISIS is ISIS thrives on networks. It thrives on individuals identifying individuals who are um, vulnerable to radicalization, and it undertakes that radicalization in a whole range of ways. Mm. And it depends on the fact; it is entirely dependent on the fact that those individuals can act as an independent, um, as an you know, as, as an independent source of fear. Hire a car, drive it into a crowd, and so on. And it has happened. And don't forget, it happened in Glasgow Airport a number of years ago. So it's not the first time. We always like to think, oh my goodness, this is different. Mm. Actually, there's been a number of cases mm. or, or instances something similar to this. What I suppose disagree with is the notion that you can solve this problem by getting rid of people out of the country, because actually this is a this is somebody who was educated in the UK. Who, for whatever no, so reason, I'm talking about the Irish guy. I'm oh, talking right, about okay. the guy that's yes, here. Sorry, no, no, okay, sorry, absolutely, yeah, you can't yeah. deport a yeah, UK yeah. citizen. Uh, from so I think, and, and I think, just on that point about w- nobody should be shocked on the basis of that analysis that ISIS targets and radicalizes uh, ra- radicalizes young people. Nobody should be shocked that this would happen here. Yeah. You yep. know, there's there's no reason why young people living in Ireland would be less vulnerable to this. Mm-hmm. And, and to, I think we need to be very car- to, very aware of that. To be fair to the guards, we have a good history, Neve. Of of tackling terrorism and and infiltrating terrorism. Admittedly, it was more domestic in nature, but quite different, unfortunately. Yeah, I suppose. Um, in this country, I think the reason France Fitzgerald says that we're not immune to an attack is because obviously we've had a huge explosion in in population from different parts of the world, and I suppose one of the um, one of the issues I think people sometimes think, well, we haven't fought in any wars. We're a neutral country. I mean, Shannon Airport has been a de facto US airbase for the last two decades. You know, there are people and military aircraft and possibly weapons that have landed or flown over this country that have gone on to kill people in that, in that region. So I, I don't think we're completely immune. And I have to say this week was the first time I felt really panicked about what I saw on television. A lot of my friends who I spoke to kind of went, oh, it's just the same thing happening again. But for me, because I suppose I work in Parliament maybe, but also because I see how vulnerable we probably are, when I saw how quickly everything clicked into action um, in London, 
it just it frightened me to think that I'm just not sure if something happened here would that we would be, have yeah. the same response. I, I don't even know is there an armed guard on the gate there of is, Leinster House? Not on the gate of Leinster House no but there is a unit that would I suppose uh, make its way down there fairly sure quickly. They're, but they're at the top of Pier Street it is much good if there's a fella after Possibly not but I think that's the, the idea anyway. of these attacks isn't it? That like yeah, it gets everybody thinking gets everyone afraid and we'll be talking about yeah. that actually in the next hour how the media might be feeding into this but uh, by the way if you're trying to get a bus somewhere today and you're not in Dublin bad news the bus air and strike is continuing and we'll talk to Dermot O'Leary of the MBRU and get our panel's opinion on that next day with us. My panel is Gronia Long and Dave O'Connell and Neave Lyons and we'll come back to them in just a moment but on the line now is Dermot O'Leary of the National Bus and Rail Workers Union. Dermot, good morning. Good morning, Jonathan. I have to say, I was just saying to the panel there, normally when strikes are called it's raining or snowing or generally unpleasant. It is at least good weather for those who are out on the picket line this morning but uh, they don't want to be there yet. That's what they're doing this Sunday. Yes, unfortunately, they'll all be sitting uh, behind the wheel of the bus, possibly wearing sunglasses on a nice sunny day, Jonathan. But they find themselves forced out onto a picket line. And again, look, they'll all be driving those buses. It's unfortunate it has come to this. But it has come to this. Um, and, and the next thing that we're not going to be surprised if it happens is that Bus Aaron may go to the High Court to seek an examiner being appointed. If that happens, what happens then? Well, look, again, there's lots of figures being bandied about in relation to this uh, whole dispute. And I, I should remind people where we started last September when the staff that are on strike were written to by the DIN CEO and told that the crisis at Expressway, uh, the company losses were £6 million. Now, that has risen to £9 million. I would dispute that £3 million increase. But uh, that aside, even if you were to take £9 million at face value, uh, again, we will, we said very clearly last week uh, and, and the preceding weeks to, to the WRC discussions that we could resolve this issue uh, through an efficiency-based agenda. Uh, but the company uh, have gone beyond that nine million request now. We're looking for thirty million, in fact, and are looking for twelve million from payroll, uh, designed specifically to become uh, more competitive as they will have it with private operators. For us, that's reducing wages and becoming yellow pack workers, if you like. So what's going to happen? Uh, how long is this strike going to go on for Dermot? Are we talking uh, another couple of weeks? How long can your, your well, men and women stay out? Well, look, again, it's, it's, not, it's not easy to be on a picket line. People have families to feed and mortgages to pay and, and all the regular bills we all have to pay, they have to pay as well. So there would be pressure uh, on the unions. Obviously, there's also pressure on um, the minister and uh, other institutions who have a role to play in this. Uh, the MBIU, for our part, have been saying very consistently, and we re- relaunched it over the weekend, that we have a four-point plan uh, that will involve, uh, I suppose, uh, uh, achieving uh, what's called an SEO or a settled employment order where people in the industry can have recent, uh, reasonable and moderate terms and conditions across all operators. We do obviously oppose uh, the closure of any routes and there's two routes uh, uh, to be closed over the next number of weeks. Oh, I know, we've, we've gone through them, but how long are you going to stay out, Dermot? That's the question. Oh, well, I look, again, I suppose as long as it takes for people uh, to see sense in terms of the other side, there's the base uh, and what's significant for us, Jonathan, as well, I have failed uh, to debate this issue from anyone with bus here over the last number of days. They don't, they don't appear to want to debate it with me uh, because there are issues uh, that we, we, I think we can agree on in terms of efficiencies and we've been saying it's very, very clear. But you've you've and, marched up and down the doors to the Labour Court and to the Labour Relations Commission. You've been in and out and you've consistently held your line. They've consistently held theirs. It's not as if bus air and management haven't tried. They have tried and they've used no, the, they've John, used John, the mechanisms John, of the state. No, John, I would dispute that. And just, just to be very, very clear, we were not at the Labour Court. The company tried to force us to the Labour Court a bit too early and self-convinced have, prove, have, borne, have proven that to be right, sorry, in, in terms of ourselves. But in terms of the union... The union has said, and we put it on record uh, unusually in correspondence last week, Normally, in WRC businesses done behind closed doors, but the, the company with the new management team, who from my perspective at least, lack industrial relations experience, and I know I'm not putting myself off as an expert, so I just, I'm in the business, obviously, 
But certainly in terms of our, our willingness and our ability to negotiate an efficiency-based agenda, we can do that. But it needs, two, it needs two sides of that party. And we did commit in writing last week discussing efficiencies. The company just turned their nose at it as simple as that. Okay. Shane Rosson and all of this, uh, there's not much coverage of your strike, by the way, in the papers today, but this, the Mail on Sunday has uh, the headline, Ross criticised by ministers over his odd stance on bus air and strike. Uh, I mean, he's digging in on this one. I'm not sure how far you're going to get with them, but uh, I, 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 even though I know the answer, I'll ask the question. Um, what do you make of Shane Ross's handling of the last few days? Well, you can answer if you like, Jonathan, but certainly I'm on record. I mean, I, I don't have to make this into a personal thing at all. Uh, he has an office. I don't need to be sitting across him from Minister Ross uh, negotiating anything, but I do need him to create an environment, not to discuss industrial relations issues. There are other issues here in terms of licensing issues and legislation and the NTA role, for example. We need a forum, and there is a forum provided for in, in the National Transport Authority uh, when it was set up in 2009. So there is a forum available. Uh, should the minister, uh, you know, see fit uh, to establish that forum, uh, he can do that. So he can assist uh, as regards criticism from from cabinet. Uh, I find it quite ironic that Fine Gael, who are very much a right wing party as far as I'm concerned, are actually criticising an independent alliance minister. And indeed, a lot of people in the independent alliance have been very, very quiet in this. Those with social consciences, as we were told for many, many years. And I'm t- speaking in particular about John Hannigan or Warford, for example, and Finney McGrath and Kevin Boxham were extraordinarily quiet, ashamedly uh, so, I would say. Are you prepared to let this company go to the wall and for your workers to lose their jobs? Because that, that is the real threat now, Dermot. Are you prepared to run the risk of that happening? No, well, I, I, again, the question probably better off put the bus here. Are they prepared to run the risk? They're not, they're, they're, as you but, say, they're not here. You're, yeah, you're here, not. so the question I'll answer, to you. I'll answer it by saying this, that bus here is a subsidiary of the CAE group, as you know. Uh, and bus here have, have been putting money into that group for many, many years. And in actual fact, if you check the accounts of Bus Iron, you will see 60 million is with the CAE group from Bus Iron's coffers over many, many years. So the CAE group have a role here. And what we've been requesting of them uh, over the last number of weeks in particular is that they need to, to, to support Bus Iron in the short term and allow us to get in and have discussions with the, with the stakeholders okay. in order to resolve this issue. Dermot O'Leary of the National Bus and Rail Workers Union, thank you very much for that. Uh, Dave O'Connell, we'll come to you. Uh, this is an issue, I suppose, outside of the Dublin media bubble. Mm. This, this is a much more serious issue because where you're from in Galway, where I'm from in Cork, there's no buses running at the moment. The train stopped running and on Friday in Cork. It's a, it's a big deal. And, and I don't know whether whether it's getting the coverage it deserves at the moment. I know there's a lot of discussion about it, but it's been a busy news week and maybe some of the lines have slipped below the radar. Probably they have, but there's also confusion. I mean, even in all the figures that Dermot O'Leary is throwing at you, whether it's 6 million, 9 million, 12 million, 30 million, who knows what the figures are. The one thing that is clear is that there, the, the, both Aaron are talking about losses somewhere in the region of 50,000 a day. The workers are talking about pay cuts in the region of about 10,000 a year. Now, both of those positions, to my mind, are unsustainable. Therefore, there has to be a third party involved in this. And I know and I understand the Minister's reason for not intervening in the first instance in this. But at the end of the day, the government is the employer in this instance and they have to get in there there is a problem with subsidies there is a problem with you know rural transportation free transport all the rest of that is part of the equation here the losses are unsustainable the wage cuts are unsustainable the money has to come from somewhere we have in dare I say in rural Ireland whether that's Cork or Galway we have the same rights to expect that we can be brought from A to B 
as somebody who has access to the dart. And at the minute, that access is not there. Uh, I mean, the, the train thing frightened the life out of people this week because they didn't expect that to happen. Mm. They turned up. Yeah, we saw the tourists that were stuck at the various places uh, with journalists having to bring them to their point of destination, uh, if you don't mind. Um, but we were always told never become the story. But there you go. In oh, this case, bad. it was for all the right Brian reasons. Brian O'Connell it is a very decent car man who the just right gave the lift there, to the right there place. You go. But, you know, the, the, the serious thing is that there are people who are stranded as a result of all of this yeah. who don't actually want to just go to Dublin on the train. It's yeah. funny, Neil, listening to what um, Dermot Leary was saying there, an interesting ratcheting of pressure up on the likes of John Halligan, mm, the Minister of boxer. Conscience and Boxer yeah. Moran. And, uh, you know, dragging them into this, I, I'm sure they won't appreciate it, but I, has he got a point? He does, but I'd say they're actually finding it hard to keep out of it. I think probably what's really happening in the background is that Shane Ross is desperate to kind of get involved in all of this. Like, he loves nothing more than a scrap, particularly <laughs> when this bus company's involved. Um, but I, th- I think actually the, the what, what he's lacking and has been since the beginning of this is tone. You know, normally in these kind of disputes, there's a lot of work going on at official level in the back channels there's a lot of talk about what do you want what do you need what are you looking to hear from us you know what do you need the minister to be saying do you need us to facilitate talks do you need us to but like we've been through that entire process now and it has yielded nothing I think another interesting thing is the public's reaction to this I've heard a lot of Oxbox now on, on this station and people are you know they're a little bit jaundiced about it and they obviously don't like to be discommoded but I've heard so many people talking about the idea that the busman is kind of nearly providing the service of the local post office or the local pub that someone will get on at a particular stop and they might be disabled or they might be elderly or they might have you know, some kind of um, uh, mental incapacity and that that person is kind of helping and making sure they get off at their right stop and, you know, providing a a deeper service to the community than just driving a bus. Mm. And I suppose that's kind of what they're looking to have reflected Mm. um, at the moment. I I suppose what they're coming up against in terms of the brick wall is also Pascal Dunhue in the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform and he has very much backed Shane Ross in his stance and he's sort of said, like, we just do not get involved in these industrial relations issues the money just isn't there and Grania I'll, I'll ask you the question in, in, and I'm saying this as somebody who comes from a place that's affected by the bus strike if this was in Dublin would there be more of an urgency to it is it because it's happening outside of Dublin that is not getting as much coverage I don't know is the answer and I like I don't live in Dublin so I live in the north so I get the train up and down as well and Translink weren't affected and I expected it to be affected actually because like everybody else I thought it's a bus strike and then I heard a oh, hold on trains are affected and so on and, and I asked the, the staff and Translink and they were like no no it's completely different but we don't understand why but I think I, when I think back to the Lewis for example the Lewis dispute I, I there was certainly more coverage I would say of the or it felt to me like there was more coverage of the Lewis dispute and it felt like, you know, the Lewis Dublin centred dispute was affecting everything Mm. we were hearing. In terms of the, the, in terms of the minister and the minister's involvement, I mean, there are three groups of people affected by this. Obviously, there's the company themselves, there's the the workers, and then as both Neve and Dave had said, there's the people who use the service, the customers, the travellers. And actually, I think there are huge parallels with the post office story because yes, it has become really clear over the course of the week that bus drivers do go above and beyond for people all over the country in very rural areas they provide a really localised service and if, if something positive has come out of this it's it's it, at least a, a light has been shone on that the fact that you know everybody needs access to mm. public infrastructure but that's a service that has but to I, be paid for I'm not sure the minister I think the minister while I understand structurally and, 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 and formally he can't get involved Karen Mulvey for example I heard Karen, Karen Mulvey saying that the other day you know you set up you set up structures ministers can't interfere 
politically, I'm not sure how long that can last, frankly. Mm. You know, I think the public are going to get it. You know, it's been a nice few days weather-wise. Add a dash of rain and showers like we had last weekend and last Monday into yeah. this. People standing at bus stops, nothing but, but coming. See, I think yeah. the min- questions will be asked of the Minister and the Cabinet more generally. What are you doing about this? Not what are you formally doing, but again, what, what's your tone? Just when you hear Dermot choosing a phrase like efficiency-based agenda, even at its lowest level, there are not cuts that can be made. There are not savings that can be made there to rescue this. It Whether the government intervenes in talks or intervenes with cash or however they do this, somebody somewhere has to inject money into this. Um, I just want to talk about, I mentioned it was a busy week because we had what happened in London, of course, and the bus strike has been covered extensively, but we had Martin McGuinness's passing and his funeral. And uh, Dave, there's been a lot of coverage again in the papers this morning. I don't know what more could have been said about Martin McGuinness that wasn't said during the week, but the newspapers have many, many tributes to and I suppose looking at it from both sides. And that's the one thing is that it's a little bit more reflective. I think there is kind of a great old Irish tradition of not speaking ill of the dead uh, immediately after their deaths. Now, there's not a lot of speaking ill of Martin McGuinness, it has to be said, but there is an attempt to put this into some kind of uh, a greater perspective on this. And I'm looking uh, at a piece that Owen O'Malley in particular has written in in the uh, Sunday Independent, where um, with McGuinness, he says the life of the man was more important than his death. The standard line was that McGuinness underwent some kind of Damascene uh, conversion, leaving behind war and moving to peace. Adam dismissed it as this at his graveside oration. And I thought that was very, very important that that was seen because otherwise we could have got swamped with this notion that everything had changed. He still retained his ideals right to the end. He isn't buried in the Republican plot for nothing. Mm. You know, he still retains that ideology right to the end and, and as is his prerogative or was his prerogative. Ronnie, anything stand out in the coverage today? <coughs> yes, I thought actually and I looked at this from the point of view of somebody who lives up north and, and will buy northern newspapers and southern newspapers and I actually thought the tone from the press down south was very different and actually was much more negative of Martin McGuinness um, and I thought the, the tone set by the Belfast Telegraph for example all week has been very muted um, and, and it's been really interesting how this has landed I think completely differently in Dublin and Belfast that's just my, my own personal reading of it um, I think it's been interesting how politicians have responded. So Ian Paisley Jr., for example, mm. saying publicly it's the manner of the whole of the person's whole life and how they end their life is as important and more important than how they start it. And I think the, the kind of the landing and the messaging has been very, very careful. I'm not sure that's come through. I actually I read several um, articles this morning, Sunday Independent, Ruth Dudley Edwards, Edwards also, and the, I actually thought they were they had slightly gone the other way mm. I, th- I take Dave's point you know it's the timing you're a number of days now beyond the funeral so on but I actually felt some of the tone if you used those to- that tone up north and I'm choosing my words carefully I don't think we'd be, we'd be where, we, where we are Jonathan actually yeah. in terms of the peace process I think part of this is actually about saying be very careful what you say there are victims who are affected and there are victims who are affected for a whole host of reasons. So I thought actually the press up north got it better, got a be- did better a better job. See, and, and I suppose they're rooted in it as well. There must be, there were many politicians down south, I'd imagine this week, Neve Lines, who felt they had to bite their, their tongues tongue. because, you know, next week they'll be cutting out Sinn Féin for doing whatever and this week they had to pay tribute to Martin McGuinness. True. Um, I think, though, I just noticed about the funeral um that it was another sort of a symbolic act and it was one of the first times that maybe Arlene Foster had allowed herself to engage in that type of a symbolic act. You know, there's a, a lot has happened in terms of the Queen coming here, shaking hands with Martin McGuinness, her bowing her, her head to our dead soldiers. Like, Arlene Foster has managed to kind of keep herself out of that realm. She refused to go to the Ireland soccer match with Martin McGuinness you know she just didn't want to kind of engage and I mean Ian Paisley Jr let's not forget like 
the Paisleys were so massively criticised with how close they were seen to have become with Sinn Féin that it damaged them politically in the North, you know, and it led to the Robinsons kind of coming in with a new broom and kind of saying, you know, we, we, we can't be seen to kind of, you know, allow ourselves to, to get too palsy. And look what's since though, actually, yeah. because what, what Arlene Foster has been accused of by a lot of commentators up North is her inability to read the political mood in the same way that Ian Paisley did. He was very clever. He was very canny. He understood that it, whether he liked it or not, he had to make and form a relationship. Peter Robinson had a very close relationship actually with Martin McGuinness. They're just very different types of personalities. And she, when she came into the church, there was a ripple of applause mm. and she couldn't believe it. She yeah. kind of looked up and also Michelle O'Neill uh, made great efforts to shake her hand did, inside the church. And, and you know what? That, that could be but when I, when, I, when I stood mm. outside the gates to where the dignitaries were leaving, I really wanted to catch Arlene Foster because I thought perhaps now that just in the emotion of it all that she might say something conciliatory. And I kind of said, you know, Arlene, London Times, can I have a quick word? And she goes, no. <laughs> and I just thought, do you know what? Like everyone else had stopped. Bill Clinton had stopped. Yes. Brian Cowan had stopped. You know, everyone was there to talk about the man it, who yeah. was being buried. If yeah, you to be fair, I think the DUP do like that word. No, they've they used do. it quite a lot over the <laughs> yeah. years. Well, I thought there was one, just one other point to say as well, which was very helpful, I thought, was the fact that it wasn't just Darlene who attended. So Simon Hamilton, who's another minister within the DUP and is one to watch and is a very, very mm. sensible minister and, and a young upcoming minister in the DUP also attended. I actually got more hope actually in relation to the political process because don't forget the deadline is tomorrow yes. in relation to Northern Peace Talk or Northern Talks so I think to have other ministers there particularly younger ministers that was a very good move and a very respectful move Okay, We will watch what happens uh, with interest over the course of the next week in terms of Northern Ireland uh, we've lots still to come uh, we look at the sport next I think it's Richie coming in is it Richie? I've seen Richie's big head outside he'll be in here shortly telling us what's on off the ball stay with us and more from our panel in just a moment but Richie McCormack from Off The Ball has joined us uh, Richie good morning How are you doing Jonathan you well? I'm good thank you What are in the sports pages and what's coming up on Off The Ball a little bit later There's on? plenty as you might imagine still in reaction to Friday night and that uh, horrific draw with Wales in there's more ways a, than one I, I'm, I'm going to deviate now because my producer told me not to ask questions oh but there's one picture in the papers that just shouldn't be there I'm sorry it, it's of Seamus Coleman on the ground immediately after it happened and I went out of my way not to see that Yeah and there it was staring back from you know, a lot of people did I mean they chose not to show the replay which I was in favour of <clears throat> at the time itself uh, of, the, of the incident which was a horrific break we found out he's broken his tibia and fibula in his leg <clears throat> and he'll, he'll be out until 2018 what? at the earliest now with this as well yeah it's because both bones in the leg were broken he had to have surgery to obviously uh, repair them yesterday um, so it's going to be a long road back to actually playing football again but they chose not to show the replay on the night and then after the match, a pretty short notice, decided to show the replay again, twice, yeah. three times. Yeah. Um, which is not quite as horrific, perhaps, as having to suffer Raymond Dunphy's uh, analysis of the game. But that's another story <laughs> for another day. Um, but we're now looking at a situation whereby it's 12 months out, possibly for Coleman. I would say, hopefully, it would be on the cautious side and say around eight to nine months. Still a long time. It is. It is an awful long time. So what's coming up on Off The Ball? Uh, we've got the pay-per-view with um, Declan Lynch and former middleweight champion of the world Andy Lee who's going to be in after 12 as well and um, we're going to have a great segment which we had a few months ago during one of the international weekends that worked out really well I think we're going to do it again today um, Malachi Clerken and Paul Rouse are going to discuss their favourite ever sporting books which is always uh, a decent enough listen so you, you guys do your best work mm-hmm. when there's no commentaries that, that, the they, they're actually we're forced actually into to work yeah you're forced to do doing. research yeah <laughs> and then we're going to be all over the National League stuff as well Dave's going to be uh, looking after Calvin Kerry for us as well this afternoon as well as the action in the Hurling League too good stuff Richie McCormick off the ball with us from 12 o'clock um, Dave O'Connell uh, on the panel if we can talk about Rescue <coughs> 116 um, 
it, they had an opportunity to to dive, and it would appear that they have at least identified that one body is in the wreckage. Yeah. This is a story that is just heartbreaking. I mean, I, I saw uh, Rescue One One Seven fly over my house on the way to to, to uh, Blacksod the other day, and my heart just went out to that crew and to everybody who's who's doing their best to recover mm. their lost colleagues. I I live beside the hospital in Galway, and uh, we are in that helicopter flight path. Uh, on it, on any given day, we have both the army helicopter and the air and sea rescue helicopters. I'd say we safely have seven or eight flights coming in a day, and I've gone from a stage where I have to be honest sometimes with the noise of this. You'd say would that ever stop? To having to realizing that everybody coming in on the on those helicopters is ill, and those that rescue them are heroes. And I think that you know if one good thing has come out of this, it is that they are very much in the public conscience for the work that they do and the way that they do it and the manner in which they carry out their duties. It is horrific at any stage to lose a body at sea and the only consolation will be that all three remaining bodies are found and that's when this part of this chapter can come to an end. But it has really, really touched the public conscience and that is the only good thing that has come out of this. Absolutely and uh, hopefully they will get resolution to that. Ron, you long, there is a story that caught my eye in the Sunday Times in an area, I suppose, the ISPCC will have done some work and it, it, it is another case similar to that of Grace but not Grace and there's a report out in it this week is that right? That's right so Kathleen Cannon is an independent reviewer and she was jointly commissioned by Tusla and the HSE into a case of an intellectually disabled uh, uh, teenager who was removed from Cork a Cork foster home uh, only last year despite an allegation of sexual abuse being made against the foster father in 2014 so the report has been commissioned and um, it's for publication it's due to the cabinet and it's for publication this week and there's a number of reasons why I suppose this is important obviously it's incredibly important that reports like this are commissioned um, but also it will shine a light on the relationship between the HSE and TUSLA when a young person goes from childhood to adulthood and that's when essentially the two agency cross their responsibilities over from TUSLA the Child and Family Agency to the HSE so I would look to this report to ensure that okay what are the lessons we need to learn um, What did something happen that ought to not have happened so you know was was Tuzla at fault in some way was the HSE at fault in some way um, but I think what, what uh, and Justine McCarthy has, has the piece here but um, the, the report apparently is critical of record keeping standards and I think that's where we are seeing too much of this. We are seeing far too many um, instances whereby um, a failure to keep records properly mm. um, is emerging. So I'm going to hold and wait and see what the report actually says because this just refers to it. But I think what was um, particularly, and, and, and you know, the public will be concerned about this because they will think of Grace and they'll think of the Grace case. Um, Tony O'Brien was at the Public Accounts Committee this week um, and was asked questions about the Grace case and he's had to now re-clarify previous statements that he made as head of the HSE to the PAC and again re-clarification to Public Accounts Committees time and time again in relation to facts and in relation to not getting facts right to committees is damaging public trust in both the HSE and and um, and other agencies. So so I think more and more reports like this will come forward. And where we see um, what should be basic um, 
processes and procedures um, where the data, the handling and the holding of data belonging to very vulnerable children is not gotten right is deeply unacceptable. And, and, and there's, you know, we're seeing too many reports coming out and no answer to it. And let's hope that's not like what you were talking earlier on, a report that will sit on a desk and nothing happen about it. And Neve, I'll just finish up with mm. you. The opinion poll in the uh, Sunday Business Post is the Red Sea Tracker. It's probably the <laughs> best one we have. I read it this morning and I am absolutely none the wiser about what the electors want. No. Well, do you want to know the most terrifying stat out of it? That 49% of people agree there should be another general election if Enda Kenny steps down and there's a new Taoiseach elected. Now, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> Trust me. In a Brexit sense, that means election. that, you know, we'll narrowly not have a general yeah, election. I mean, uh, there's also another interesting one there about uh, 58% of people agreeing that a united Ireland is the best way to avoid a hard border. Um, I mean, that's interesting if, uh, I suppose, if it's and if it's an indication of sentiment, we're quite a long time away from a border poll still, although I think actually it definitely will happen in our lifetimes. Um, it's just an idea that perhaps now people are starting to actually examine the idea of it and the theory of it and how it might even work. Obviously, at the moment, it would be difficult to see it passing as we stand. But perhaps if, if an executive was formed in the yeah. north and, and, and things started to run a little bit more smoothly, um, it would certainly become... Uh, a possibility but yeah no change really in the polls I mean we are very much where we were um, more or less obviously if there was a general election in the morning based on these figures Fianna Fáil would actually flip with Fianna Gael in terms of you'd have a Micheál Martin Taoiseach and have Fianna Gael support from the outside but I mean really the idea here is the minority government isn't working so just replacing it with another one Yeah so let's not rush to a general yeah. election just yet I think is probably the best thing to say um, That is it for the newspaper review Nia Blinds political editor of the Times Irish edition Dave O'Connell editor of the Connacht Tribune and Grant Long Chief Executive of the ISBCC all off out to enjoy the sunshine. Thank you very much for joining us. <laughs> Thank you.